0: Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Welcome, everybody. Uh, This is one of my favorite spots on campus, just a beautiful, beautiful room, so it's always a pleasure to be here. I'm Henry Brady, uh, dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy and a professor of political science. Um, It's really a great pleasure to be here tonight to introduce uh, Jennifer Granholm, uh, former two-term governor of Michigan, and most importantly, a UC Berkeley graduate. Yes. Now, how did she get here? Well, she was born in Canada, but grew up in the Bay Area. So she knows the Bay Area very, very well. I found, by the way, when I first met her, I started pointing out places on campus. And all of a sudden, I realized, no, she knows the campus. She's been here. I don't need to be my tour guide self. So it's a thrill to have somebody who knows her way around. Uh, She graduated from UC Berkeley in 1984 with a a BA in political science and in French, and from Harvard Law School in 1987. Uh, She then went off to Michigan and launched her public service career as a clerk for Michigan's Sixth Circuit, then became a federal prosecutor in Detroit, from which I'm sure she has some very interesting tales to tell. Uh, Must have been an interesting place. Not tonight. Yeah, some other time. Uh, And then she went on to be elected uh, Michigan's first female attorney general. In 2000, there's still some seats up here, yes. (laughs) In 2003, she was elected governor. Of course, she faced some daunting challenges. Already it was clear that manufacturing was fleeing the Middle West, and then, of course, came uh, along the Great Recession. So Michigan lost something like half of its manufacturing jobs that it had in the 1990s Uh, by the end of your term. And uh, obviously that was because of factors that were almost uh, entirely out of her control given what was going on in manufacturing in the United States and what was going on with respect to the economy in general. Um, She nevertheless tried very hard to deal with these problems by figuring out ways to change the nature of the Michigan economy to focus on Uh, Green jobs to focus on fundamental economic change to try to streamline the state budget. Uh, Something In fact, this sounds very reminiscent of what we're going through here in California right now. High unemployment rate, uh, a state budget that had to be cut given the exigencies of uh, tax revenues, and what do you do, and at the same time trying to make sure in Michigan, a problem that luckily we don't have so acutely, we're trying to restructure the economy. So I'm very excited tonight. To hear about the governor's strategy for job creation, about what we can do to become a 21st century economy. Uh, I think a lot of the debate right now is about macroeconomic issues, about should we be spending and have a fiscal stimulus, or should we be having monetary policy, or what should we be doing. And those are, of course, important macro policies. But I think ultimately the real question for America is can we restructure our economy so we're competitive in the 21st century and we can attract jobs of the sort that we have to have. That's the more fundamental question, and I don't see a lot of discussion or debate about that exact problem. So it's thrilling to have somebody who's devoting themselves to this. She's writing a book about the topic right now and who has, I think, lots to say about it. So without further ado, it's a distinct thrill, a great pleasure, quite wonderful, to have Jennifer Granholm here. She's not only a distinguished public servant, but also most importantly right now, a new visiting faculty member at the Goldman School of Public Policy. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so
1: much, Dean Brady, and thank you all for coming out this evening. It is a very cool thing for me to be back. Um, I, I just, you, everybody's been so nice, and that's um, not something that a politician gets to say very often. So I'm really glad to be among friends and good to be home. Glad to have brought um, my better half with me, Dan Mulhern, who's up here, who will also be um, teaching and who has lived with me through the crisis of Michigan now for the past eight years, 12 if you count. The attorney, when I was Attorney General, but of course as Attorney General I didn't have any responsibility for the economy. So I'm really happy to be back. So it's great to be back. But here's what I want to do. I want to um, talk about something that has been very near and dear to my heart, but really near and dear to um, anybody who cares about whether America can actually create jobs in a global economy and keep them here. And so let me just start by by saying that... um, My experience really is, um, uh, as governor of Michigan, Michigan's been the state that's been the hardest hit. Uh, Even though California's unemployment rate is high too, in terms of the hit to the main sector in our economy, Michigan was the hardest hit state in the nation for the entire decade. And and so I'm gonna start by talking about the problem, of course, let me just say, this subheading there, a U.S. jobless recovery, everybody keeps saying, you know, record profits, great. We see huge amounts of, you know, activity in the stock market, record levels. But you're not seeing that with respect to jobs. We're still stuck at this very, very low level. And that is because we have seen a structural change in the nation's economy. It's, a, it's not a cycle anymore. This is a structural change, and it's because globalization has provided – opportunities for companies to go overseas. And in fact, in the U.S. just um, this past decade, 42,000 factories closed. Many of them didn't just shut down, but many of them went somewhere else. And this is just the way it is in a global economy. It's not that you can prevent factories from leaving, when you have trade agreements, etc., that enable the owners of those factories to make a greater profit by paying less in expenses somewhere else. It is just a way, the way things are. So the question is, in the face of that, what do we do? This is just a couple of stats to uh, indicate that this is movement that we are seeing. In 2001, 32% of the top 500 U.S. companies' profits came from abroad. But by 2008, it was 48%. And I don't even have a more recent figure because it's not something that they, um, you know, put in their their, uh, SEC filings. But we are seeing clearly opportunity grow outside of the U.S. and opportunity for jobs shrink inside the U.S., Um, Just in a two-year period, 2006 to 2008, these multinational companies, the hiring abroad rose by 729,000 in those two years, and the hiring dropped in the same firms in the U.S. by 500,000 jobs. So we are seeing this incredible movement, and Henry was talking, Dean Brady, excuse me, was talking about um, manufacturing. Between 2000 and 2009, the total American workers employed in auto manufacturing parts fell by 50%. In Michigan, a state of 10 million people, this past decade, we have lost 850,000 jobs. Can you imagine that? It's just a big number. But 850,000 jobs in a state of 10 million people, when you're counting senior citizens, children, etc., it is like a nuclear bomb has gone off in the industrial world. Midwest and in manufacturing communities. I want to tell you one story just to sort of lay this conversation out. And it's the story of a community in Michigan named, called Greenville. And Greenville is a small town. All right. Oh, this is a great quote by Jack Welch when he was chairman and CEO of GE. Ideally, you'd have every plant you own on a barge to move with currencies and changes in the economy from the CEO's perspective, right? Because you'd want to keep moving it to the place where it's cheaper. Just keep moving it so that you can continue to get a larger amount of profits. And again, this is just the way it is because the corporations have a responsibility to their shareholders and to make profit. So what do we do in the face of that? Let me just talk to you about Greenville for a moment. So Greenville is a little town of 8,000 people in the middle of Michigan. How many of you guys have been to Michigan before? Oh, I love it! So, anybody been to Greenville? No. Okay. (laughs) Greenville is a town of 8,000 people right in the middle. You know, Michigan is, we, we carry a map of Michigan on the end of our arms. It's in the shape of a mitten. So, Greenville is in the middle of the state. Greenville had a large refrigerator factory. In fact, it was known as the refrigerator capital of the Midwest. They said it was the refrigerator capital of the world, but that was probably an exaggeration. Nonetheless, they had a really big refrigerator factory. And in that town of 8,000, 2,700 people worked at the refrigerator factory. The refrigerator factory was an Electrolux factory. It had started, you know, different... um, refrigerator factories was acquired by Electrolux. Anyway, the point I'm talking about, it was an Electrolux factory. So it was my first year as governor, 2003. And I get a call from the head of our Michigan Economic Development Corporation who said, we got a big problem. This refrigerator factory in this town of 8,000 people is going to pull up and leave. And I said, "Well, well, let's just put what we have on the table to make sure that they stay. We'll make a good business case for them to stay here in Greenville. I said, "What's the problem?" and he said, "Well, they intend to go to Mexico where they can pay a buck 57 an hour." And I said, "Okay. Well, let's get everybody in a room." So we went to Greenville Mayor was there. The city manager was there. The guy who was the president of the community college was there. The head of the United Auto Workers who represented the workforce was there. Everybody was in this big room in City Hall. And we were, everybody basically, you know, shook out their pockets, put their chips in a big pile on the table, and slid it over to the management of Electrolux. And so we put on the table 20 years of zero taxes, we put on the table that we would help to build them a brand new factory. We put on the table huge amounts of labor concessions. In fact, the UAW at that point didn't want us to tell anybody how deep they were prepared to go because they wanted to save these jobs. We put free training, etc., on the table. We put it all. The Electrolux management took our package. They went out of the room to evaluate it. They were out of the room for 18 minutes. They came back in and they said, "This is a really generous package. We have never seen the kind of offer that you've put on the table for us before, But there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to compensate for the fact that we can pay a buck 57 an hour in Mexico." So Greenville experienced this loss of. 2,700 good-paying jobs. Now, um, the the month that the last refrigerator came off the assembly line, um, I, there was the employees had a gathering, and they called it the last supper. And it was to sort of say goodbye. It was a, a bit of grieving. And I went to this gathering. It was at a community building called Orchard's Clackles Orchard Pavilion. And I went in and there were round tables and families were sitting around. It. They had checkered tablecloths. They were eating out-of-box lunches. There was a, a band playing. And um, as I went in to the hall, a guy comes up to me. And he's got a ponytail and he's got, um, he's got his two daughters with him. He's got tattoos on his arms. And he says, he says Governor, um, he says, I'm 48 years old. I've worked at this factory for 30 years. These are my two daughters. He said, my father worked at this factory. My grandfather worked at this factory. I went from high school to factory, and this is all I know. And then he puts his hand on his chest, and he said, so who is going to hire me? That question, who is going to hire me, has haunted me for eight years as we've tried to restructure Michigan's economy in light of the fact that we have had seven times more manufacturing jobs than any other state. When we see this inexorable pull of manufacturing to lower wage countries, what do we do as a nation to keep a middle class? What do we do for people like this guy and the thousands and thousands of others like him? we pulled in all of the experts, the economic experts, the folks who know economic development as well as economists, and we said, what do we do as a state, given how much concentration we have in manufacturing jobs in this global economy? How do we figure this out? And um, the um, experts said, you've got to soar with your strengths and do a SWOT analysis. You know what a SWOT analysis is? Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Do that on your entire economy just like a business would do in its business portfolio. So we did that. Now, in the meantime, Greenville lays off these workers. The factory is demolished. They have this beautiful new factory that's in um, Mexico. And we said, we obviously can't focus on the traditional manufacturing jobs because we're not going to keep those. So we've got to focus on areas that we know we can be good in and that have opportunity in the United States. We picked six sectors, but one of those sectors is the one I want to talk about tonight. And that is energy. Y'all in California know this very well because you have been leaders in energy. And I want to give you an idea from the Michigan perspective of how important this opportunity is for us to create jobs here. First of all, the opportunity is huge. This is just a slide that shows the investment in energy that has been happening over the past six years. You can see the trajectory. A little bit of a dip in 2009 or a flattening out because of the recession. But the bottom line, huge amount of investment happening with this clean energy economy. I want to show you something that John Doerr says. Of course, he's a very big uh, venture capitalist.
2: Today, the Internet economy is about a trillion dollars and 1.2 billion people are on the Internet. But well, the energy industry is even bigger. That's a $6 trillion worldwide economy with 4 billion users of electricity. I like to say that the new energy industry is the largest economic opportunity of the 21st century. It's the mother of all markets, and America needs to lead.
1: The mother of all markets. I love that because it really speaks of the opportunity that we might have, right? Six trillion dollars of investment expected to be made in this industry. 37 million jobs globally that are expected to be created in this sector. That's huge. Huge. And the question is, where are those jobs going to be, right? And what do we need to do as a nation to be able to ensure that we get a piece of that pie. Now here's the challenge for us, is that other countries are in it to win it. They all know this is a huge opportunity. And the challenge with manufacturing products, especially clean energy products, technology necessary, you cannot expect that the first investments are going to go from where they are invested first. In other words, governors try to get the investment of factories because they know it's going to be more difficult to move them. And that is likely to have the research and development teamed up with the the actual manufacturing. You can't separate R&D with new products from the actual manufacturing. So we try to get the first investments, but so do other countries. And they're working at it big time. In fact, if you look at the top ten in, uh, countries of investment intensity, this is, uh, means the amount that they are investing in their capital to make sure that they've got these jobs in the ground, factories, etc. cetera. Look, the U.S. isn't even on the top ten list. These other countries are developing policies to get this opportunity inside of their borders. This is a great quote that... Um, Hu Jintao, who's, of course, the president of China, said, Bush asks him, what keeps you up at night? And, um, you know, Bush was, of course, kept up at night by the threat of terrorism. And uh, Hu Jintao said that what keeps him up at night is creating 25 million jobs a year. Okay. That's the kind of attitude we should be having, Right. That's kept me up at night, but I don't have the resources of the federal government. We need federal policy to be able to create a level of jobs in our country to recognize that our economic competitors are hungrier, or at least have acted hungrier in a more hungry fashion than we have. China has developed a plan to invest $17 billion in fuel economy, hybrids, and electric cars by 2020. China manufactures 40% right now of the world's solar photovoltaic systems. And in fact, this, um, this is the California solar market. Now, so look at this. This is the last quarter of 2008. The blue at the bottom is the amount of the solar installations in California that were made in China. That's 8%. Japan had 32%. The U.S. had 44% and a few others. That was the fourth quarter of 2008. Look at what it was in the fourth quarter of 2010. China has 56% in two years. Japan has 15%. The United States' amount has dropped to 13%. And then the rest. Look at that. In two years. What are they doing that we're not doing? There are responses to this that the U.S. has got to adopt to get in the game to create those jobs here. Because once those installations, once those factories happen, they are going to happen elsewhere and be imported to the U.S. rather than being made here. And that is a problem. And, of course, this is a great example of how um, aggressive China has become And this is not just China, but it's an an example that I think is really important because we got Evergreen Solar, um, who was in Massachusetts. We got them to put one factory in Michigan, but they're threatening to pull that up and go to China because um, the solar panel prices have plunged. They got huge government assistance from the Chinese government. They got low-interest loans from state-owned banks in China. And, of course, there's low manufacturing costs. The reasons to leave, they said was that there was no federal government assistance, no U.S. challenge to subsidies on the Chinese side. There was a process for federal loans, but it was very costly. And what the CEO said is that the federal government, our government, has brought a knife to a gunfight. Its support is completely out of proportion to the support displayed by China and even to that of Europe. I'm just saying, we've got to get, we cannot, we've, if we are going to be in this fight, we got to be in it. And we have to learn what other countries are doing to be able to win these investments. Korea is going to have a $20 billion commitment, or does, to building the advanced batteries for the electrification of the vehicle. Germany currently employs 300,000 people in the renewable energy sector. The goal is to get 47% of their power from renewable sources by 2020. And they anticipate that very soon more people will be working in the renewable energy sector than in their auto sector. Why? Because of policies. Policies matter. Let me give you an example. Can you hit the video on that?
2: The time is now. It's it's like right now. We are falling behind as a country. We're failing to solve some of the problems that it's our responsibility to solve. Energy as an industry has been broadly underinvested in for a generation. There will be more new wind turbine orders in Turkey this year than the United States. Look, I'm a free market capitalist but advancing energy technologies really does have a government component. The good news is this is eminently you know, having energy security, job creation, r- reduction of global warming is eminently solvable by innovations. Without those things This country is not going to lead, simply. This is all about doing. You know, everything about energy is really not about talking. It's really about doing.
1: Of course, you know, um, Jeff Firmelt is now the president's, uh, the head of the Council of Economic Advisors for the president, replaced, um, um, it wasn't, uh, well, it was Larry, wasn't it? It was... It was the, but that's, he's head of the advisory group, right? It's a, it's a big job, and he's got the president's ear. He's heading a group called this uh, um, American Energy Innovation Council as well, and that group of capitalists are saying that the United States must get in the game if we are going to be serious about getting these jobs here. So my point is that policy matters, and so I want to give you a quick story from the Michigan Lab in the laboratory of the states. So in... Um, Two thousand and eight we did i have a, uh, I had a, a split legislature, so I had to compromise a lot to be able to get um, some stuff through and one of the things that we got through was a modest um, renewable energy standard, just ten percent by two thousand and fifteen but having put that in place and set the market signals, um, we actually we're able to see a lot of good results. And so, you know, we got, for example, 10 companies to come, 4,965 jobs since the passage of that in 2008. Solar, seven companies, 20,000 jobs, $3 billion investment invested since 2008. Um, in batteries, because we had the, um, the renewable energy standard, but more importantly, the federal government, when President Obama was elected... Had as part of the stimulus an investment in battery technology, Michigan teamed up with battery companies, and we pancaked state incentives on top of the federal ones. And as a result, Michigan got more than half of all of the federal battery grants for companies in Michigan. The expectation uh, is that they are going to create 63,000 jobs. Seventeen. Companies, about $5 billion that has been committed to be invested, and that's just since August of 2009. The reason why I raised this is because policy does matter, and it's all about jobs. I just wanted to show you, I wish I had my cell phone with me. I would show you, I mean, some of you know this already, but for many people who haven't seen um, a, a lithium ion car battery, it is huge. It's, of course, just the same technology as the battery in your cell phone. But this battery, because um, up to this point it had not been made um, prolifically in the U.S., it has to have companies doing all of this. So those battery cells, there's 200 of them. Inside of a battery cell, there's an anode, there's a cathode, there's separator, there's electrolyte. Every one of those steps requires a company to make them and people to be able to assemble them. So you assemble the cells, you make them in the U.S., you put them together into modules. That's another company that does that. They get assembled into a and then the packets integrated into the vehicle all of that is hugely job intensive all of that prior to this time was largely made elsewhere before the recovery act only 2% of the lithium ion batteries for vehicles were made in the US and now because of that investment that the US government made about 40% will be made in the United States very good This um, slide just is a compilation of what policy has done in Michigan in two years. So you can see 47 companies, $9 billion invested, 89,000 jobs that are projected. Now, if you can do that in a little state like Michigan, think what the nation could do if we just sent the right signals. So what are the policies that we can get in this environment, in Congress? Now, it's... It's a whole new world because we have a much more conservative federal Congress. But the question is, can a case be made, a bipartisan case be made, that there are policies that both sides can agree on if it leads to job creation and business is on board? And so here are an example. Let me just – I'll give you an example of the policies in just a second. Let's listen to Ursula Burns, chairman and CEO of Xerox. We've made a nation by leading. Why wouldn't we take this thing, not debate all of the sideline conversations, which are important, but the core of the energy discussion that I'm involved in is how does innovation, science, technology, engineering, and math, how does that help transform energy? I mean, we've transformed how we communicate. We've transformed how we print. We've, I mean, everything we've transformed. Why would this be the one area that you would say, well, we'll just do it the old way. I think it's the craziest conversation in the world it's something that we need, let's go to it. Something we need, let's go to it. So here are four examples of policies that have gotten some bipartisan support. These are modest proposals, but these modest proposals, experts have said, could create three million jobs in America. So what are they? We want to push for the supply and the demand of electric and fuel-efficient cars. We need to create demand through a renewable energy standard And an energy efficiency resource standard, because energy efficiency, obviously, is a huge opportunity to create jobs, too. We need to double the combined heat and power sites in the U.S. You guys know, uh, for those of you who aren't necessarily following industrial policy, but combined heat and power and cogeneration all over Europe, but in the United States, not so much huge opportunity to create efficiencies in factories where you can take the heat, the excess heat, the waste heat, and recycle it, essentially, and convert it to energy in those factories. You just do that, and the industrial community loves this. You will significantly reduce the carbon footprint, but most importantly, you'll be creating jobs. And the fourth one is significantly increase the investment in research and development. So... On the electric vehicle side, the expectations are from the experts that just um, increasing supply and demand for electric vehicles will create about 1.9 million jobs. And in addition to that, if you also push through technology that increases fuel economy standards to, say, 50 miles per gallon by the year 2020, then you'll create another 200,000 jobs. All good. What does it mean to expand supply and demand for those vehicles it means one on the demand side you want to make sure that people want to buy these cars and so ensuring that the cost of that battery which by the way is pretty expensive has been pretty expensive but is coming down it's uh, the amount of the battery was about 35000 per vehicle and then it dropped and they expect it'll be about 15000 in another year or so, and it's going to be at par with an internal combustion engine, the predictions are, by about 2015. So you have to be able to create demand for this product by bringing down that initial cost, which is why when the Recovery Act said you get a credit of $7,500 every time you buy one of these cars, that helps, obviously, to create the demand. And the supply side, what they did with the Recovery Act in fostering the technology, commercializing that breakthrough technology in partnership with private actors, all of that helps to create both supply and demand. 200,000 jobs to be created if you just did an annual improvement in fuel efficiency, Uh, 4% uh, 4%, uh, would create 200,000 jobs. A federal renewable energy standard... 20% by 2025 would create 274,000 jobs. This is, um, according to the Renewable Energy Standard Alliance, I actually think that's a very conservative number because that's a nationwide standard. I think it's it's probably a lot higher than that. In fact, in California, the Union of Concerned Scientists, I believe, said that California's new renewable energy standard at 33% would create even more than that number there. So... I think that that's a low ball number, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a respected source. Um, these jobs that are created are all kinds of jobs for all kinds of people, but importantly, from at least my point of view, to have a manufacturing sector that is actually building these products in this country again is so critical. And if we do not, if we decide that we're going to step back and have a hands-off approach to to intervening in the economy to create this new sector, then we will continue to see these manufacturing jobs go. It just will happen. We will not have a manufacturing sector in this country, and therefore, the United States will be a fundamentally weak nation. If we don't make things in this country then we will not be able to make the means for our own defense or our own energy independence. We cannot lose the manufacturing sector of this country, and that's why creating a market signal that we as a nation are serious about um, becoming energy independent has to be, Uh, a step going forward. So manufacturing jobs, a huge piece of that. Construction and craft trades, 23% um, of the jobs created are in the construction area. Engineering and professional technical services, operation and maintenance, and of course administration and management. All kinds of jobs. If you create a federal energy efficiency resource standard... Just a modest 15% standard would create 200,000 jobs by 2020. This is from the White House. They have asked for this as part of their budget going forward to spur incentives to be able to do energy efficiency in industrial as well as utilities. And hopefully there's some bipartisan support for that. Um, The combined heat and power will create 600,000 jobs if we double the number of sites in the United States. And research and development, I have this slide up here, and I'm sorry in the back because you probably can't see it that well, but this basically breaks down the federal government in terms of investment. And you can see that energy gets this um, very small amount. Research and development gets a very small amount. When you compare, for example, with research and development on health, um, on Medicare, uh, of course, Medicare, income, uh, security, defense, et cetera, take a huge amount. We just have this tiny little sliver. On energy and these other countries have a huge investment in energy research and development and as I started to say earlier you talk to anybody who who is a manufacturer they will tell you that you can't just go after the research and development jobs if you want to keep the research and development jobs in America you have to have manufacturing nearby because those scientists, those engineers, they've got to see the process. They have to have hands-on. Separating them will not work. The, the manufacturing will follow, and the, the scientists, the engineers, will follow the manufacturing. So if we want to stop the loss and the brain drain of, of engineers and of scientists and of technology, then we have got to figure out the policy that keeps manufacturing in this country. little bill. Can you, can you click it?
3: Thanks. A key element to get an energy breakthrough is more basic research. And that requires the government to take the lead. Only when that research is pointing towards a product, then we can expect the private sector to kick in. But we're missing the basic innovation that would get us uh, this whole new way of making energy. By 2030 we'd be in a position uh, to change the transportation infrastructure uh, so that it's a, a zero carbon approach and to change the electricity infrastructure so it's also a zero carbon approach. I think we need to do a better job taking the tough and interesting problems and mapping that back to the science you learn. You know, why learn physics, chemistry, material science, well the answer is that it will let you participate in these breakthroughs and it should be fascinating, it should be drawing in about ten times as many people as it is today. Uh, We need a lot of bright minds, this is fun work.
1: These four solutions are um, solutions that have been identified by a number of um, non-governmental organizations that they want to be able to push through Congress. And um, as you can see, the, the numbers on here gets you to 3.1 million jobs just through these pragmatic solutions. Now, you notice I don't talk about cap and trade. I'm not talking about a carbon tax, because none of that is likely to happen in Congress, just, just to be frank and pragmatic about it. What can we get? What is, what is doable? And that can be a significant base on which we can, as a nation, create more manufacturing jobs. Those four are doable, and pragmatic solutions to be able to do it. I just want to take you back to Greenville for one moment. Um, um, this whole discussion, or my whole yakking at you, um, really is about what is the role of government, right, in intervening in economies. What, what And there's a lot of people, especially many in Washington, who strongly believe that um, America should just be hands-off, that we should just let the free market rule. And that, you know, you have creative destruction in a free market economy, but that's just the way it is. So we're not going to spend any money, certainly, to create any jobs here. If you have low enough taxes, they say, that will create the jobs. Now the problem with that argument, of course, is that no matter how low the taxes are, I mean, in Greenville, we offered zero taxes. They were in a renaissance zone. They weren't paying anything. It still wasn't low enough to be able to keep those jobs in America, in Michigan. So the question is, is there a role for government to try to create the right supply and demand policies to keep jobs here and grow jobs here? Should we be looking at what our competitor nations are doing? to try to put on the table the same kinds of policies. Because anybody who says that there's a free market out there in this global economy has not been watching what our competitor, economic competitors are doing. This is not a free market when they're, you know, they're putting sand in the engine to be able to steer jobs in their direction. So we're either in the game or we're not in the game. And if we're not in the game, we have forfeited. That's the bottom line. Back to Greenville for a moment. So it's not a totally sad story in Greenville. They've got a lot of challenges that they're still working on. But after Electrolux left, we um, decided that we were going to try to replace these lost jobs. And we were going to go after some of this new technology. So we went to a solar company called United Solar Ovonics. And we said, look, we will we'll train the people. The Montcalm Community College will... Retrain anybody you want, any of these Electrolux workers, we can retrain. We will provide you with tax incentives. We will partner with you to make you successful. And as a result, there are two new solar factories in Greenville, which is great because though many of those Electrolux workers are working there. But not enough. It's not enough. Greenville, though, is sort of like the little engine that, that could... And um, I just wanted to show you, I'll share with you just for a moment, just this little funny clip from January of 2011, because Greenville has really taken on the solar realm um, by storm in the way that they can. Here's a little clip.
0: it's generating through that snow. Greenville school leaders say their primary goal is educational. We're giving Greenville high school students, and really K-12 students, a knowledge advantage. in in an
3: emerging technology.
0: Danny Hansen and his classmates actually had the chance to play a part in the installation. The total cost for the renewable energy project for Greenville schools, one million dollars. The district is paying for the project with grant funds and by selling the energy to consumers energy. The demand is driven, at least in part, by state requirements that utilities get some of their energy from renewable sources.
3: The combined system at the high school and at Lincoln Heights Elementary should bring in between eighty dollars and $90,000 a year in revenues. Well, That more than pays for the bonds that bought the equipment.
0: It's going to cover its costs, and there are so many side benefits, and we put people to work. That's because the district is buying the panels from Unisolar, the Greenville company that moved into a community still reeling from the closure of Electrolux. The city of Greenville has solar arrays of its own, at City Hall, at the airport, and now at the community center. Just like the panels at the schools, some city panels produce energy sold to consumers' energy. Other panels generate electricity for city buildings, cutting the city's energy costs.
1: You Notice what the temperature is on that? Uh, 18, 18 degrees. I just love that, you know? They're out there putting solar panels in the middle of the snow. You know, they have to dust the snow off to allow the sun to get through. It's so excellent. So, uh, so this community, I mean, they're determined, you know, to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. So, who are these two smiley guys? This is Pete Haynes, uh, the one on, on the right. And George Bosonic is the one on the left. Pete Haynes is the superintendent of schools. He was the guy in the video who was explaining this. George Bosonic is the city manager of Greenville. And why are they smiling? They're smiling because Greenville has decided to live up to its name. And they are now calling it Green -er Greenerville. They put an ER in there because they are determined to be the first city in Michigan where all of the municipal buildings are off the grid. Very cool, right? Built by their, by their people. And they're standing not in front of a house, but that's the airport. <laughs> Isn't that great? So I'm just saying... <laughs> If we get communities across this country to be examples like Greenville and like many communities in California are doing, I think we can send a message to Washington that we want jobs in this country. And clean energy jobs, I think, are the biggest opportunity going. So thank you so much for coming out tonight. Henry, I know we're going to have a few questions and answers.
0: So, okay. Well, great. As public policy dean, I have to push you a little bit further, I think, on the question of whether the government should be involved here. Uh, okay, so the government should be involved in r and D. I'll give you that. Um, but why in these other areas? What is it that the government should be doing? Should it be picking winners and losers? That's what...
1: I have just grown. I watch the I got... right-wing
0: talk shows. I know how to, to make these arguments. So should we be picking winners and losers? Just let's get those tax rates down, and everything will be great. So what is it government should do again?
1: The, the government needs to identify what's a critical national need, and it needs to invest, co-invest in public-private partnerships with industry to be able to get these jobs to stay in the United States. Otherwise, they are going to go. So... So, yes, the government's picking winners, if you will, but they're picking winners that make America strong. It's why the government picks the winner of creating a defense industry because it makes America strong. It's why the government invested in NASA, in the Internet, because it makes America strong. And the benefits, the side, the ancillary benefits, the spin-off benefits from that obviously move out beyond just government need, helps the private sector as well. Energy In energy, there is a critical national need, jobs. But as we're seeing across the world, we also have a critical national need to be energy independent as well.
0: Well, how about an intermediate approach, though, something like standards that says you, you have to have a certain fraction of your energy come from green energy or your automobiles have to meet certain standards and so forth. That's not quite picking winners and losers, but it's sort of setting up some kind of demand for these kinds of products.
1: Correct, and that's why one of the, both of those are on the list of things that we should be pushing Congress to do.
0: Is that better or worse? or how much, I guess I want to get a I think sense of You have of the to go both. You have to have this supply kind of and
1: demand. I mean, I the mean, government sending a market signal and setting standards obviously gives you a demand for those products, but you have to supply the technology and the finances to be able to allow those companies to meet that demand, especially for new technology where the upfront costs are more expensive until it's commercialized and taken to scale.
0: So let me just for a moment embroil you in California politics. You know Governor Brown has gotten rid of a lot of the local redevelopment uh, efforts or is trying to get rid of them. Those would be the places where this kind of investment would be made. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? I, now I, I, yes, no. I,
1: don't, I know. I hate to sound like a politician. I don't know what he's doing. Um, okay. but, uh, but let me just say. He's trying from, to cut the
0: budget. Well, he's
1: trying to cut the budget, right. But so from my experience, The local units uh, that have redevelopment arms, if they're effective, can be very great allies in being being partners in recruiting businesses and making a strong economic case. At least we used them significantly in Michigan, especially since we didn't have the – it would be bottlenecked in Lansing, Michigan, if we didn't have those partners out on the ground. Now, I don't know if there are – ways to enhance the um, accountability, the the effectiveness of those agencies on the ground, if that's where he's going at, it's hard for me to um, uh, second-guess a fellow Democratic governor, governor who's gone through tough budgets.
0: <laughs> you made some of those decisions yourself, yeah. I, I, I Brutal. know, from talking to my friends in Michigan. So, um, okay, let's go to some questions here. So one thing that's got to happen here is re-educating the workforce for new jobs. Uh, you indicated some of that's happening at community colleges or even, in this case, a high school, it seemed like. So tell me more about that. What, so we what should we be doing? I'm so
1: glad whoever asked that. I feel like it's a plant. Um, seriously, because we, we did this great thing I, uh, called No Worker Left Behind. And what we did was because we had such a huge number of workers who were like that guy that I was telling you about who had never been to college, and we in Michigan have a fairly low percentage of adults who have been to college because of our manufacturing history. People could, could go to factory, from factory to, I mean, from high school to factory, and have a great middle class way of life. That was gone. So what we did in No Worker Left Behind is that we teamed up with all of the community colleges across the state, and we got the federal government to give us permission to be able to retool our workforce development dollars. So what we did is we said to all of those workers who were unemployed, you have three years to sign up. We will pay for you to be retrained or trained in the first instance at a community college in an area of need in our economy, and we'll pay for it, $5,000 per year up to $10,000 per worker. We said, we cannot have you go back and get a degree in something that does not lead to a job. So there was a list of sectors that we would pay for people to be retrained in. We'd pay for them to go and get a healthcare job or in, you know, installation of wind turbines or the things that we knew we were focused on. As a result of that, we saw a 35% increase in enrollment in community colleges of those who had gone through No Worker Left Behind, 81% had a job, got a job, or kept a job, or moved up the ladder in, an, in the area that they were trained in. It's four times the national rate. We said we would not pay for you to go back and get a, get a degree in political science or French. Those are my, I could say it, because those are my degrees, because we don't have use for you, but uh, we do have use for people who have specific hands-on um, experience in some of these areas. So it's an example of a policy change that made a difference for individuals.
0: Okay, I, I think this is perhaps the most popular question in my quick uh, survey of the various questions, uh, and they all have this flavor. Um, how can we be sure that if we create a renewable energy manufacturing sector, uh, so we create new electroluxes, that suddenly they don't come to us one day and say, gee, it was great getting started here. Thanks for the subsidy. Thanks for the R&D help. But guess what? We can get workers in Mexico for, what was it, a fifty-seven an hour? We're moving. Yeah.
1: So this is what – so you can't do it for every, everything, right? Because otherwise the bank runs dry. You have to decide as a nation what are important for our our nation's needs. If you're going to give somebody a tax break, the quid pro quo is that you build it here and you create the jobs here. If you create clusters, around renewable energy, and you work with the universities, for example. You create um, what Singapore has done, which is called a golden triangle between the universities and the private sector and government to create an environment where they are successful globally. We need a market in this country. We have a need in this country. The market is here. So the catch is they have to agree, if they're going to take any of these, they have to agree to stay here and hire our people.
0: Is that the full answer? Is there no other thing that might keep them, um, perhaps well, the, the R&D capability? Well, perhaps? certainly,
1: it's, it's the same thing. It's true with R&D. It's true with the tax incentive up front, the asset financing that's right. that often uh, could be a lure to keep somebody here. And it's also true with respect to having a renewable energy standard or some kind of market signal that the United States is going to be purchasing your product, or citizens in the United States are going to purchase your product. And perhaps also
0: having education that's really good so that we make sure sure we have workers that, although they're paid more, they're they're really actually more productive per hour or something like that.
1: Exactly right. And advanced manufacturing is, of course, different than your traditional repetitive motion manufacturing, which requires a level of skill that the older version of manufacturing did not require.
0: Okay, so one of the things you you try to do with Electrolux is provide very, very uh, low rates of taxes... Is that something that's going to happen with, in all of this, that uh, all, as we go on there's going to be more and more efforts to say, well, lower taxes, lower taxes?
1: Um, what, um, I, and I, how then
0: do we provide the services you, to educate the If you the ask people? any of
1: these companies, they'll say the most important thing that, that the United States government can do is set, get a market signal so that I know my products are going to be purchased and, two, provide me access to capital so I can buy the equipment that is necessary to produce these products. It's not so much the tax rate. It is much more about access to capital and getting a market, so supply and demand.
0: Okay. Also, we've we've got unions, which get, in in some cases, high wages. You talked about how the UAW was willing to make concessions with respect to Electrolux. But uh, as we know right now, there's a lot of strife going on in the Midwest with respect to at least one governor who suggests that perhaps – Pardon me? More than one. Well, more than one, yes. Ohio, Wisconsin, Indiana, at least, and Michigan to some extent. Uh, yeah. Um, what What should we be doing about collective bargaining? How do you feel about what's going on in Wisconsin? Are strong unions important to create the kinds of results you want, or are they an, an impediment?
1: Okay, so now you you got um, public sector and private sector, ah, right? right? So let me just take them quickly. Private sector... Um, Just in automotive manufacturing, labor costs are 7% of the vehicle. The labor costs are not an overwhelming amount of the uh, issue. The UAW, as one example, the new president of the UAW is a fellow named Bob King. He has taken it upon himself to ensure that the UAW is a partner with management in quality of the vehicle. In fact, he's obsessed with quality. And what he is saying to the Ford, uh, General Motors, and Chrysler is, if you want to have a quality car... You have to use our people because we have the level of expertise and we're going to invest in their training. This is the new frame on the private sector side that the unions are taking, is that we are going to be partners in making you globally competitive, that we are the advantage and not the disadvantage, that the old way was management versus labor, but the new way is us against the world. So that's number one on the private sector. The private sector has taken on a lot of reforms with respect to their own pensions and benefits, wages, tiered wages, et cetera. The public sector is learning from the private sector. Um, I firmly believe that this uh, effort in Wisconsin is not an effort to uh, balance the budget, it is an effort to quash the union. The union has said that they would give the um, concessions that the governor is asking for, um, I say this as governor of the state that has cut more out of state government as a percentage than any state in the nation. We have cut every single year that I was governor. Uh, and for us, it's – I mean, I've cut things that other governors have barely begun to scratch the surface on. For example, our, um, our new state employees pay 20% of their health care benefits. Um, our employee, new employees don't even have a pension. They, don't, they are on a 401K. Um, you know, we've, we've gone through all of this. The older employees vested. We kept them in, but the new folks um, who didn't expect that they were going to be on that system have a different system. We learned that from the, what the private sector has done to become competitive. These are not easy things, but I negotiated these at the bargaining table. And it was difficult. These were tough negotiations, but I always respected the fact that there was a representative of the folks who are doing the work in the state to get to serve citizens. The last thing you want to do as a CEO is tick off all of the people who work for you by, um, by trashing them. So both on the teacher side as well as on the um, public employee side, you can get a lot more with honey than vinegar. And even if it's, it's hard to negotiate, I think what he's doing, and I said this the other night, is uh, the lazy way of achieve, achieving those savings because it just means that he doesn't get doesn't go back doesn't have to go back every year and try it again. He gets to do it by fiat one time because he's got a legislature of his own party, and it's really not about the bu- budget balancing.
0: Well, what's the root of why we have folks who have, in your opinion? Uh, policies that just simply won't solve the problem. Uh, This questioner wants to know, how can policymakers who receive huge contributions from smokestack and carbon-based energy uh, industries be persuaded to support clean energy? Is it really even possible, or is money just so overwhelmed politics now that you're going to get what the folks with the money want?
1: Um, There is no doubt that money has a huge, huge influence But um, this is why you Goldman School of Public Policy students I exhort you to raise your hand and run because we need people who are not tainted and polluted by lobbyist money who have um, the best interests of their community or their nation at heart. We need people who will stand up and do the right thing. And if if you don't Um, then we will get what we've got. I hope we can get uh, a change of this Citizens United case, which allows for corporations to be considered um, as people for donating to political parties. It's totally ridiculous. It furthers the corruption of the political system. We've we've got a lot of work to do, though.
0: So... That's a great note to end on. Let me just ask Dan Mulhern to stand up and wave to the crowd since he's here, and we want to welcome him to Berkeley because he's going to be teaching in the business school mostly, but also I hope we'll get him over to the public policy school. So, in fact, uh, Governor Granholm and Dan are both going to be in the law school, the business school, and, of course, the Goldman School of Public Policy. We feel blessed to have them here. Thanks for coming. Welcome home.
1: Thank you all. Appreciate it.